I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. So glad to have you with me this evening. In the fall of 1924, a young Austrian-American artist came to Paris and asked a taxi driver to take him to his studio in Neuilly on the west side of the city. To his surprise, he found that the driver was heading toward the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Where are you taking me? the young man asked. I know this town like my pocket. Today is the funeral of Anatole France, the driver said. I thought you'd want to see it. Anatole France, born in Paris in 1844, was a poet, journalist, and novelist, the author of several best-selling novels. Ironic, skeptical, witty, he was considered the ideal man of letters and is thought to be the model for the narrator of Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time. Frost was a member of the Académie Française and won the 1921 Nobel Prize for Literature in recognition of his brilliant literary achievements, characterized as they are by a nobility of style, a profound human sympathy, grace, and a true Gallic temperament. Tonight's story was written by Anatole France in 1907. It tells the story of a character in a small French village who was very important in the lives of all its people and had a strong influence on their attitudes and actions. The curious thing is, he never actually existed. Or did he? Putois by Anatole France When we were children, our tiny garden, which you could go from end to end of in twenty strides, seemed to us a vast universe made up of joys and terrors, said Monsieur Bergeret. Do you remember Putois, Lucien? called Zoe, smiling as was her wont, with lips compressed and her nose over her needlework. Do I remember Putois? Why? Of all the figures which pass before my childhood's eyes, that of Putois remains the clearest in my memory. Not a single feature of his face or his character have I forgotten. He had a long head, a low forehead, added Mademoiselle Zoe. Then, antiphonally, in a monotonous voice, with mock gravity, the brother and sister recited the following points of a kind of police description. A low forehead... Wall-eyed, furtive-looking, a crow's foot on his temple, high cheekbones, red and shiny. His ears were ragged. His face was blank and expressionless. It was only by his hands, which were constantly moving, that you divined his thoughts. Thin, rather bent, weak in appearance, in reality of unusual strength, he could easily bend a five-franc piece between his thumb and forefinger. His thumb was huge. He spoke with a drawl. His tone was unctuous. Suddenly, Monsieur Bergeret cried eagerly, Zoe, we have forgotten his yellow hair and his scant beard. We must begin again. Pauline had been listening with astonishment to this strange recital. She asked her father and her aunt how they had come to learn this prose passage by heart and why they recited it like a litany. Monsieur Bergeret replied gravely, Pauline, what you have just heard is the sacred text, I may say the liturgy of the Bergeret family. 
it is right that it should be transmitted to you in order that it may not perish with your aunt and me. Your grandfather, my child, your grandfather, Éloi Bergeret, who was not one to be amused with trifles, set a high value on this passage, principally on account of its origin. He entitled it The Anatomy of Putois, and he was accustomed to say that in certain respects he set the anatomy of Putois above the anatomy of Carême Prenant. If the description written by Zenoman, he said, is more learned and richer in rare and precise terms, the description of Putois greatly excels it in the lucidity of its ideas and the clearness of its style. Such was his opinion, for in those days Dr. Le Double of Tours had not yet expounded chapters 30, 31, and 32 of the fourth book of Rabelais. "'I can't understand you,' said Pauline. "'It is because you don't know Putois, my daughter. You must learn that in the childhood of your father and your Aunt Zoe there was no more familiar figure than Putois.' In the home of your grandfather Bergeret, Putois was a household word. We all in turn believed that we had seen him. Who was Putois? asked Pauline. Instead of replying, her father began to laugh, and Mademoiselle Bergeret also laughed, though her lips were closed. Pauline looked first at one and then at the other. It seemed to her odd that her aunt should laugh so heartily and odder still that she should laugh at the same thing as her brother, for, strange to say, the minds of the brother and sister moved in different grooves. "'Tell me who Putois was, papa. Since you want me to know, tell me. Putois, my child, was a gardener, the son of honest farmers of Artois. He had set up as a nurseryman at Saint-Omer, but he was unable to please his customers and failed in business. He gave up his nursery and went out to work by the day. His employers were not always satisfied.' At these words, Mademoiselle Bergeret, still laughing, remarked, "'You remember, Lucien, when father couldn't find his inkpot, his pens, his sealing wax, or his scissors on his desk, how he used to say, "'I think Putois must have been here.' "'Ah!' said Monsieur Bergeret. "'Putois had not a good reputation.' "'Is that all?' asked Pauline. "'No, my child, it is not all. There was something odd about Putois. We knew him. He was familiar to us, and yet—' "'He did not exist,' said Zoe. Monsieur Bergeret looked reproachfully at her. "'What a thing to say, Zoe! "'Why thus break the charm? "'Putois did not exist. "'Dare you say so, Zoe? "'Can you maintain it? "'Before affirming that Putois did not exist, "'that Putois never was, "'you should consider the condition of being "'and the modes of existence. "'Putois existed, sister, "'but it is true that his was a peculiar existence.' "'I understand less and less,' said Pauline, growing discouraged. "'The truth will dawn upon you directly, child. "'Know that Putois was born in the fullness of age. "'I was still a child. Your aunt was still a child. "'We lived in a small house in a suburb of Saint-Omer. "'Our parents led a quiet, retired life "'until they were discovered by an old lady of Saint-Omer, "'Madame Cornouillet, who lived in her manor of Montplaisir, twelve miles from the town.' and who turned out to be my mother's great-aunt. She took advantage of the privilege of friendship to insist on our father and mother coming to dine with her at Montplaisir every Sunday. There they were bored to death. But the old lady said it was right for relatives to dine together on Sundays, and that only ill-bred persons neglected the observance of this ancient custom. Our father was miserable. His sufferings were pitiful to behold. But Madame Cornouillet did not see them. 
she saw nothing. My mother bore it better. She suffered as much as my father, and probably more, but she contrived to smile. "'Women are made to suffer,' said Zoe. "'Every living creature in the world is born to suffer, Zoe. It was in vain that our parents refused these terrible invitations. Madame Cornuyer's carriage came to fetch them every Sunday afternoon. They were bound to go to Montplaisir. It was an obligation which they could not possibly avoid.' It was an established order which only open rebellion could disturb. At length my father revolted, and swore he would not accept another of Madame Cornuyer's invitations. To my mother he left the task of finding decent pretexts and varying reasons for their repeated refusals. It was a task for which she was ill-fitted, for she was incapable of dissimulation. Say, rather, Lucien, that she was not willing to dissimulate. Had she wished... She could have fibbed like anyone else. It is true that when she had good reasons, she preferred giving them to inventing bad ones. You remember, sister, that one day she said at table, Fortunately, Zoe has whooping cough, so we shall not be able to go to Montplaisir for a long time. Yes, that did happen, said Zoe. You recovered, Zoe, and one day Madame Cornuyer came and said to our mother, My dear, I am counting on you and your husband to dine at Montplaisir on Sunday. Our mother had been expressly enjoined by her husband to give Madame Cornuyer some plausible pretext for refusing. In her extremity, the only excuse she could think of was absolutely devoid of probability. I am extremely sorry, Madame, but it will be impossible. On Sunday, I expect the gardener. At these words, Madame Cornuyer looked through the glazed door of the drawing room at the wilderness of a little garden where the spindle-trees and the lilacs looked as if they never had and never would make the acquaintance of a pruning-hook. "'You're expecting the gardener? What for? To work in your garden?' Then our mother, having involuntarily cast eyes on the patch of rough grass and half-wild plants, which she had just called a garden, realized with alarm that her excuse must appear a mere invention. "'Why couldn't this man come on Monday or Tuesday to work on your garden?' Either of those days would be better. It is wrong to work on Sunday. Is he occupied during the week? I have often noticed that the most impudent and the most absurd reasons meet with the least resistance. They disconcert the opponent. Madame Cornuyer insisted less than might have been expected of a person so disinclined to give in. Rising from her chair, she said, What is your gardener's name, dear? Putois, replied our mother promptly. Putois? had a name. Henceforth he existed. Madame Cornuyer went off mumbling, Putois. I seem to know that name, Putois. Putois. Why, yes, I know him well enough, but I can't recall him. Where does he live? He goes out to work by the day. When people want him, they send for him to some house where he is working. Ah, just as I thought. He is a loafer, a vagabond, a good-for-nothing. You should beware of him, my dear. Henceforth, Putois had a character. Monsieur Goubin and Monsieur Jean Marteau came in. Monsieur Bergeret told them the subject of the conversation. We are talking of the man whom my mother one day caused to exist and created gardener at Saint-Omer. She gave him a name. Henceforth, he acted. I beg your pardon, sir, said Monsieur Goubin, wiping his eyeglasses. Do you mind repeating that over again? "'Willingly,' replied M. Bergeret. "'There was no gardener. The gardener did not exist. 
my mother said, I expect the gardener. Straight away the gardener existed and acted. But, Professor, inquired Monsieur Goubin, how can he have acted if he did not exist? In a manner he did exist, replied Monsieur Bergeret. You mean he existed in imagination, scornfully retorted Monsieur Goubin. And is not imaginary existence existence? exclaimed the professor. Are not mythical personages capable of influencing men? Think of mythology, Monsieur Goubin, and you will perceive that it is not the real characters, but rather the imaginary ones, that exercise the profoundest and the most durable influence over our minds. In all times, and in all lands, beings who were no more real than Putois have inspired nations with love and hatred, with terror and hope. They have counseled crimes, they have received offerings, they have molded manners and laws. Monsieur Goubin, think on the mythology of the ages. Putois is a mythological personage, obscure, I admit, and of the humblest order. The rude satyr who used to sit at a table with our northern peasants was deemed worthy to figure in one of Jordan's pictures and in a fable of La Fontaine. The hairy son of Sycorax was introduced into the sublime world of Shakespeare. Putois, less fortunate, will be forever scorned by poets and artists. He is lacking in grandeur and mystery. He has no distinction, no character. He is the offspring of too rational a mind. He was conceived by persons who knew how to read and write, who lacked the enchanting imagination which gives birth to fables. Gentlemen, I think what I have said is enough to reveal to you the true nature of Putois. I understand it, said M. Goubin. Then M. Bergeret continued, Putois existed. I maintain it. He was Consider, gentlemen, and you will conclude that the condition of being in no way implies matter. It signifies only the connection between attribute and subject. It expresses merely a relation. Doubtless, said Jean Matteau, but to be without attributes is to be practically nothing. Someone said long ago, I am what I am. Pardon my bad memory, but one can't recollect everything. Whoever it was who spoke thus committed a great imprudence. By those thoughtless words, he implied that he was devoid of attributes and without relation. Wherefore, he asserted his own non-existence and rashly suppressed himself. I wager that he has never been heard of since. Then your wager is lost, replied M. Bergeret. He corrected the bad effect of those egotistical words by applying to himself a whole string of adjectives. He has been greatly talked of, but generally without much sense. I don't understand said M. Goubin. That does not matter, replied Jean Marteau. And he requested M. Bergeret to tell them about Putois. It is very kind of you to ask me, said the professor. Putois was born in the second half of the nineteenth century as Saint-Omer. It would have been better for him had he been born some centuries earlier, in the forest of Arden, or in the wood of Brosseliande. He would then have been an evil spirit of extraordinary cleverness. A cup of tea, Monsieur Goubin. Was Putois an evil spirit then? inquired Jean Marteau. He was evil, replied Monsieur Bergeret, in a certain way, and yet not absolutely evil. He was like those devils who are said to be very wicked, but in whom, when one comes to know them, one discovers good qualities. I am disposed to think that justice has not been done to Putois. Madame Cornuillet, was prejudiced against him. She immediately suspected him of being a loafer, a drunkard, a thief. Then, 
reflecting that since he was employed by my mother, who was not rich, he could not ask for high pay. She wondered whether it might not be to her advantage to engage him in place of her own gardener, who had a better reputation, but also, alas, more requirements. It would soon be the season for trimming the yew-trees. She thought that if Madame Éloi Bergeret, who was poor, paid Putois little, she who was rich might give him still less, since it is the custom for the rich to pay less than the poor. And already in her mind's eye she beheld her yew-trees cut into walls, spheres, and pyramids, all for but a trifling outlay. "'I should look after Putois,' she said to herself, "'and see that he did not loaf and thieve. I risk nothing and save a good deal.' These casual laborers sometimes do better work than skilled workmen. She resolved to make the experiment. She said to my mother, Send Putois to me, my dear, and I will give him work at Montplaisir. My mother promised she would willingly have done it, but really it was impossible. Madame Cornbillet expected Putois at Montplaisir and expected him in vain. She was a persistent person, and once having made a resolve, she was determined to carry it out. When she saw my mother, she complained of having heard nothing of Putois. Did you not tell him, my dear, that I was expecting him? Yes, but he is so strange, so erratic. Oh, I know that sort of person. I know your Putois through and through. But no workman can be so mad as to refuse to come to work at Montplaisir. My house is well known, I should think. Putois will come for my instructions, and quickly, my dear. Only tell me where he lives, and I will go and find him myself.' My mother replied that she did not know where Putois lived. He was not known to have a home. He was without an address. I have not seen him again, madame. He seems to have gone into hiding. She could not have come nearer the truth. And yet, madame Cornuyer listened to her with mistrust. She suspected her of beguiling Putois and keeping him out of sight for fear of losing him or rendering him more exacting. And she mentally pronounced her over-selfish. Many a judgment ratified by history has no better foundation. "'That is quite true,' said Pauline. "'What is true?' asked Zoe, who was half asleep. "'That the judgments of history are often false. "'I remember, Papa, that you said one day "'it was very naive of Madame Roland to appeal to an impartial posterity, "'and not to see that if her contemporaries were malevolent, "'those who came after them would be equally so.' "'Pauline,' inquired Madame Zoe sternly, "'What has that to do with the story of Putois?' "'A great deal, aunt.' Well, "'I don't see it.' Monsieur Bergeret, who did not object to digressions, replied to his daughter, "'If every injustice were ultimately repaired in this world, "'it would never have been necessary to invent another for the purpose. "'How can posterity judge the dead justly? "'Into the shades whither they pass, can they be pursued? "'Can they there be questioned? "'As soon as it is possible to regard them justly, they are forgotten.' But is it possible ever to be just? What is justice? At any rate, in the end, Madame Cornuyer was obliged to admit that my mother was not deceiving her, and that Putois was not to be found. Nevertheless, she did not give up looking for him. Of all her relations, friends, neighbors, servants, and tradesmen, she inquired whether they knew Putois. One or two replied that they had never heard of him. The majority thought they had seen him. I have heard the name, said the cook, but I can't put a face to it. Putois, why, I know him very well, said the road surveyor, scratching his ear, but I couldn't exactly point him out to you. The most precise information came from Monsieur Blaise, 
the registrar, who declared that he had employed Putois to chop wood in his yard from the 19th until the 23rd of October in the year of the comet. One morning, Madame Cornuillet rushed panting into my father's study. "'I have just seen Putois,' she exclaimed. "'Ah, yes, I have just seen him. Do I think so? But I am sure.' He was creeping along by Monsieur Tonchon's wall. He turned into the Rue des Abbesses. He was walking quickly. Then I lost him. Was it really he? There's no doubt of it. A man about fifty, thin, bent, looking like a loafer, wearing a dirty blouse. Such, indeed, is Putois's description, said my father. Ah, I told you so. Besides, I called him. I cried, Putois, and he turned around. That is what detectives do when they want to make sure of the identity of a criminal they are in search of. Didn't I tell you it was he? I managed to get on his track, your putois. Well, he is very evil-looking. And it was extremely imprudent of you and your wife to employ him. I can read character, and though I only saw his back, I would swear that he is a thief, and perhaps a murderer. His ears are ragged, and that is an infallible sign. Ah, you noticed that his ears were ragged. Nothing escapes me. My dear Monsieur Bergeret, if you don't want to be murdered with your wife and children, don't let Putois come into your house again. Take my advice and have all your locks changed. Now, a few days later, it happened that Madame Cornuillet had three melons stolen from her kitchen garden. As the thief was not discovered, she suspected Putois. The gendarmes were summoned to Montplaisir, and their statements confirmed Madame Cornuillet's suspicions. Just then, gangs of thieves were prowling around the gardens of the countryside. But this time the theft seemed to have been committed by a single person and with extraordinary skill. He had not damaged anything, and had left no footprint on the moist ground. The delinquent could be none other than Putois. Such was the opinion of the police sergeant, who had long known all about Putois and was making every effort to put his hand on the fellow. In the Journal de Saint-Emer appeared an article on the three melons of Madame Cornuillet. It contained a description of Putois, according to information obtained in the town. His forehead is low, said the newspaper, he is wall-eyed, his look is shifty, he has a crow's foot on the temple, high cheekbones, red and shiny, his ears are ragged, thin, slightly bent, weak in appearance, in reality he is extraordinarily strong. He can easily bend a five-franc piece between his thumb and forefinger. There were good reasons, said the newspaper, for attributing to him a long series of robberies perpetrated with marvelous skill. Putois was the talk of the town. One day it was said that he had been arrested and committed to prison, but it was soon discovered that the man who had been taken for Putois was a peddler named Rigobert. As nothing could be proved against him, he was discharged after a fortnight's precautionary detention, and still Putois could not be found. Madame Cornuillet fell a victim to another robbery still more audacious than the first. Three silver teaspoons were stolen from her sideboard. She recognized the hand of Putois, had a chain put on her bedroom door, and lay awake at night. About ten o'clock, when Pauline had gone to bed, Mademoiselle Bergeret said to her brother, Don't forget to tell how Putois seduced Madame Cornuillet's cook. I was just thinking of it, sister, replied her brother. To omit that incident would be to omit the best part of the story. We must come to it in the proper place. 
The police made a careful search for Putois, but they did not find him. When it was known that he could not be found, everyone made it a point of honor to discover him, and the malicious succeeded. As there were not a few malicious folk at Saint-Omer and in the neighborhood, Putois was observed at one and the same time in street, field, and wood. Thus another trait was added to his character. To him was attributed that gift of ubiquity, which is possessed by so many popular heroes. A being capable of traveling long distances in a moment, and of appearing suddenly in the place where he is least expected, is naturally alarming. Putois was the terror of Saint-Omer. Madame Cornouillet, convinced that Putois had robbed her of three melons and three teaspoons, barricaded herself at Montplaisir and lived in perpetual fear. Bars, bolts, and locks were powerless to reassure her. Putois was for her a terribly subtle creature who could pass through closed doors. A domestic event redoubled her alarm. Her cook was seduced, and a time came when she could conceal her fault no longer, but she obstinately refused to indicate her betrayer. Her name was Gudule, said Mademoiselle Zoe. Her name was Gudule, and she was thought to be protected against the perils of love by a long and forked beard, a beard which suddenly appeared on the chin of that saintly royal maiden venerated at Orag protected her virginity. A beard which was no longer young sufficed not to protect the virtue of Gudule. Madame Cornuillet urged Gudule to utter the name of the man who betrayed her and then abandoned her to distress. Gudule burst into tears but refused to speak. Threats and entreaties were alike useless. Madame Cornuillet made a long and minute inquiry. She diplomatically questioned her neighbors, both men and women, the tradesmen, the gardener, the road surveyor, the gendarmes. Nothing put her on the track of the culprit. Again she endeavored to extract a full confession from Gudule. In your own interest, Gudule, tell me who it is. Gudule remained silent. Suddenly, Madame Cornier had a flash of enlightenment. It is Putois. The cook wept and said nothing. It is Putois. Why did I not guess it before? It is Putois, you unhappy girl. Oh, you poor, unhappy girl. Henceforth, Madame Cornouillet was persuaded that Putois was the father of her cook's child. Everyone at Saint-Omer, from the president of the tribunal to the lamplighter's mongrel dog, knew Gudule and her basket. The news that Putois had seduced Gudule filled the town with laughter, astonishment, and admiration. Putois was hailed as an irresistible lady-killer and the lover of the eleven thousand virgins. On these slight grounds there was ascribed to him the paternity of five or six other children born that year, who, considering the happiness that awaited them and the joy they brought to their mothers, would have done just as well not to put in an appearance. Among others were included the servant of Monsieur Maréchal, who kept the general shop with the sign of Le Rendez-vous des Pêcheurs, a baker's errand girl, and the little cripple of the Pont Biquet, who had all fallen victims to Putois's charms. The monster, cried the gossips. Thus Putois, invisible satyr, threatened with woes irretrievable all the maidens of a town wherein, according to the oldest inhabitants, virgins had from time immemorial lived free from danger. Though celebrated thus throughout the city and its neighborhood, he continued in a subtle manner to be associated especially with our home. 
He passed by our door, and it was believed that from time to time he climbed over our garden wall. He was never seen face to face, but we were constantly recognizing his shadow, his voice, his footprints. More than once, in the twilight, we thought we saw his back at the end of the road. My sister and I were changing our opinions of him. He remained wicked and malevolent, but he was becoming childlike and simple. He was growing less real, and, if I may say so, more poetical. He was about to be included in the naive cycles of children's fairy tales. He was turning into croque-mitaine, into père fouettard, into the dustman who shuts little children's eyes at night. He was not that sprite who by night entangles the colt's tail in the stable. Not so rustic or so charming, yet he was just as frankly mischievous. He used to draw ink moustaches on my sister's dolls. In our beds we used to hear him before we went to sleep. He was barking with the dogs. He was groaning in the mill-hopper. He was mimicking the songs of belated drunkards in the street. What rendered Putois present and familiar to us, what interested us in him, was that his memory was associated with all the objects that surrounded us, Zoe's dolls, my exercise books, the pages of which he had so often blotted and crumpled, the garden wall over which we had seen his red eyes gleam in the shadow, the blue flower-pot one winter's night cracked by him, if it were not by the frost. Trees, streets, benches, everything reminded us of Putois, our Putois, the children's Putois, a being local and mythical. In grace and in poetry he fell far short of the most awkward wild man of the woods, of the uncouthest Sicilian or Thessalian fawn, but he was a demigod all the same. To our father, Putois' character appeared very differently. It was symbolical and had a philosophical signification. Our father had a vast pity for humanity. He did not think men very reasonable. Their errors, when they were not cruel, entertained and amused him. The belief in Putois interested him as a compendium and abridgment of all the beliefs of humanity. Our father was ironical and sarcastic. He spoke of Putois as if he were an actual being. He was sometimes so persistent and described each detail with such precision that our mother was quite astonished. Anyone would say that you are serious, my love, she would say frankly, and yet you know perfectly. He replied gravely, the whole of Saint-Omer believes in the existence of Putois. Could I be a good citizen and deny it? One must think well before suppressing an article of universal belief. Only very clear-headed persons are troubled by such scruples. At heart my father was a follower of Gassendi. He compromised between his individual views and those of the public. With the Saint-Omerites he believed in the existence of Putois but he did not admit his direct intervention in the theft of the melons and the seduction of the cook. In short, like a good citizen, he professed his faith in the existence of Putois, and he dispensed with Putois when explaining the events which happened in the town. Wherefore, in his case, as in all others, he proved himself a good man and thoughtful. As for our mother, she felt herself in a way responsible for the birth of Putois, and she was right, for in reality, Putois was born of our mother's teradiddle, as Caliban was born of a poet's invention. The two crimes, of course, differed greatly in magnitude, and my mother's guilt was not so great as Shakespeare's. Nevertheless, 
she was alarmed and dismayed at seeing so tiny a falsehood grow indefinitely and so trifling a deception meet with a success so prodigious that it stopped nowhere, spread throughout the whole town, and threatened to spread throughout the whole world. One day she grew pale, believing that she was about to see her fib rise in person before her. On that day her servant, who was new to the house and neighborhood, came in and told her that a man was asking for her. He wanted, he said, to speak to madame. What kind of a man is he? A man in a blouse. He looked like a country laborer. Did he give his name? Yes, madame. Well, what is it? Putois. Did he tell you that that was his name? Putois, yes, madame. And he is here? Yes, madame. He is waiting in the kitchen. You have seen him? Yes, madame. What does he want? He did not say. He will only tell madame. Go and ask him. When the servant returned to the kitchen, Putois was no longer there. This meeting between Putois and the new servant was never explained. But I think that from that day my mother began to believe that Putois might possibly exist, and that perhaps she had not invented You've been listening to Putois, a story by Anatole France. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. Special thanks to Rick Sowash, whose music from his suite, A Little Breakfast Music, was heard at the beginning of tonight's story. If you haven't voted yet, remember that Tuesday is Election Day. So let's go out tonight with these lines from John Greenleaf Whittier's poem, The Poor Voter on Election Day. The proudest now is but my peer, the highest not more high. Today of all the weary year, a king of men am I. Today alike are great and small, the nameless and the known. My palace is the people's hall, the ballot box my throne. That's it for tonight. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy. Be sure to vote. All the best. <laughs>